the mini break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, June 6th, the moment the 2023 French Open men's singles draw came out. Every single person that follows the sport looked to see when would Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz potentially come head-to-head. Well, folks, we've finally reached that point of the event. It'll be Djokovic versus Alcaraz, a match you could argue is the match of the decade thus far in the French Open semifinals. Of course, Djokovic, a four-set winner on Tuesday over Karen Hachanov, Carlos Alcaraz, three sets, Fairly dominant, let's be honest, over Stefano Tsitsipas on today's show. Of course, we want to recap each of those quarterfinals, but we also got a preview. What, again, many could consider by far the best match, the most anticipated. I don't want to say best match because we haven't seen it yet. But the most anticipated match of the 2023 season to date, the most anticipated matchup at a slam we have probably had in quite some time as well. Now, for those of you worried, I will be recording a separate podcast recapping everything that happened in the women's singles draw on Tuesday. But joining me here on this episode to help break down where things stand in the men's singles draw is a man all of you know best as a return champion here on our Cracked Rackets shows, a Cracked Rackets contributor and once upon a time host of this mini break podcast. Of course, speaking of hosting, he's also hosting shows such as Monday Match Analysis. He's hosting three, a tennis show. He's hosting and doing the play-by-play commentary for many of the matches you all got to watch unfold throughout the course of this French Open. Of course, you also know him as a guy with pretty solid food takes, a guy whose music was shaped by his sport video game experience. <laughs> It's our dear friend, Gil Gross, joining us once again. Gil, welcome back to the show. It is always a pleasure to see your face, to to see it twice within the span of 24 hours, that much more so. How are you doing, my friend? I'm good, Grusky. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pretty offended by the characterization of my food taste is pretty solid. I think I put in a lot of effort to (laughs) surpass that level, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. Twofold. No, because it's here. It's not there. You brought it here. So let's let's address this. Your lists are pristine. Like no one prepares a better menu of options for what you want to explore. Your preferences, which I think form some of your takes, they can be disagreeable. That would be my that would be my nuanced take of your food takes. All right. Uh, I mean, do you want to? Do we want to? Yeah, I mean, I, my tongue has never recovered from the spice thing we had on day one. I was in LA, like all those months ago in August. Whatever you put me through, MSG wise, I'm still in recovery. That was that's definitely a you problem. If you can't handle <laughs> the spice, like I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, all of that said. It is a pleasure to be joined by you. Before we get into it all, I joined you on Monday Match Analysis yesterday. I have seen subsequently you have already posted a recap of Djokovic Hachanov today, but what you got cooking from a content standpoint throughout the course, or the rest, I should say, of this French Open? Yeah, post-match videos on on many of the men's matches. I'm going to preview the semifinal and... Uh, preview the the final so it's uh it, it, there's a lot of volume as we go down the stretch here that's for sure on 
on Gilgross YouTube channel and Monday Match Analysis on all podcast platforms. Oh, got to milk a slam for all it's worth. We know that here on the content side. I always appreciate all of your recaps. I always appreciate following your work, of course. I also appreciate all the listeners who tune in day out, as well as the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Best equipment, lowest prices, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Gil, I think I'm going to switch to the Yonix racket. It's Yonix for what it's worth because it'll bother me if I don't correct myself. But I know colloquially it's referred to as Yonix. I think it's a once-in-a-generation stick. Like, I'm so in on this stick I've been using. I think I might make a full switch. I know, but we've already talked about this. So you've done so much college tennis that you're forgetting that we've talked about this. And On a show? Yes. Your your synopsis in your brain, your... What, uh, what is that the correct pronunciation? Your synopsis? Uh, my synapses? Synapses. Yeah, it's they're, okay. You're, they're you're they're science fried. Fan. They're fried, yeah. man. Yeah, it's fair. But I've actually used it now, like months. I've ho- been holding on to this demo I've had while my rackets <laughs> were getting restroke for a little too long. Um, like before I was maybe selling a false bag of goods, now I thoroughly believe it. Like this racket. It's really, really good. You're using what? The white bab, I want to yeah. say? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Steak. No, it's... Who's still using the white bab? No one. Shevchenko. Oh, wow. <laughs> Honestly, that's a good cop. That's fine. That's like, <laughs> you have uh, respect now. Um, yeah, okay. Fair enough. I'll hold you there. But I'm just saying, if you're looking for anything, tennis-point.com, promo code is CR15. All of that established... A premise I shot out in my intro, match of the decade. Let's just get to it, the anticipation for this Djokovic-Alcaraz match, even before we talk about how they got there. Nadal-Djokovic 2021, you felt, I would say, some. Uh, that match remained special to me because you could just feel how well Djokovic was playing and how specifically focused he was on beating Rafa at the French Open on that occasion. And I do think that's the match in terms of 2020's matches, and it's only been a couple of years, but that's the match this one goes up against in my head right away. Is there, what was that, a semifinal in 2021 or a quarterfinal, and then they played the semifinal next year, whatever it was. I think it's the match of the decade thus far. Like, I don't think we're hyping it too much. Where are you? So we're in retrospect, or are we talking most anticipated matches? Because give, give me both. I actually, it, it, it's it's a tough one. I actually think the match of the decade is Nadal Medvedev in the Australian Open final in terms of did a match deliver. Now, was that up there for most anticipated? Absolutely not. I would, but if we're talking about the Roland Garros, you know, the Djokovic Nadal matches, none of them finished off all that well. Uh, last year was a four setter and 2021. It was amazing. It was Novak climbed one of the greatest and tallest mountains in all of sports. And he did so, so, so impressively, but it wasn't, it wasn't a classic clash uh, other than the quality of play uh, for certain points. I would say also, when it comes to anticipation, the Djokovic Medvedev US Open final shouldn't be slept on when it looked at, you know, when, when we looked at, okay, here it is, one more match, Grand Slam on the line. 
It's fair. That's that's a good one to throw up there. Both matches, by the way, Nadal, Medvedev, in terms of best match, you're right. That's probably number one thus far. And it's too early because we haven't seen this match play out. You're right. I should have just talked on the, the aspect of most anticipated. Why the Djokovic-Medvedev-U.S. Open final, to me, it was less anticipated, I suppose. And I'm wrong. Like, you are right. Big picture. That is the most anticipated match of the decade because if you're going for a Golden Slam, and by the way, I haven't started to. Today was the first day I started thinking in my head, "Oh my God, Djokovic is going to win all four slams in 2023, isn't he?" Like it's the <laughs> first time that thought even entered my head because if he wins this one, he's winning Wimbledon, and then the U.S. Open becomes the real race. But why this match to me is more anticipated than that one? is because of how Alex Zverev pushed Novak Djokovic in the semifinal the round prior. It just felt like Djokovic only had so many punches left in him at that point. Like, Zverev was the first—it was the first time after a slam match that entire season where it felt like, oh my god, someone might have broken through the wall. And it hasn't come crumbling down yet entirely, but Djokovic was clearly damaged heading into that 2021 U.S. Open final. What makes this one to me? Uh, I'll you disagree. I, 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 I oh, do. Go ahead. I think, yeah, I think it was the favorite. I mean, I right. It. it I don't remember what the. Uh, do we do we have a sponsor, a betting sponsor? Anyway, I don't know what the odds were, uh, but I imagine Novak was the favorite, and I imagine the vast majority. Now, I had picked Medvedev before the tournament which uh, was one of my better picks that I ruined by changing it before the final, I got so swept up into the Novak, you know, there's no way he is going to lose the 28th match. He's 27 matches into this Grand Slam thing. Uh, There's no way he's losing the last one. Um, But, you know, I, I know what you're saying in hindsight, but I think before the match, it wasn't like that. Anyway, Let's go on to what makes this one so anticipated, shall we? The scarcity is huge here. Yeah. I mean, yes, you have Djokovic going for the 23rd major. As, so just like we have with, with so many of the big three matches recently, you look at the slam race and that gives it some extra build. You have the clash of generations, the incredible age gap. It feels like a matchup will cherish where it's like, we know we're not going to be getting this for the next 15 years, but... I think this happens all the time where like, I don't know when, even when like McEnroe played Connors, it's like, oh wow, it's the two generations. There's only going to be so much overlap here. So like, this is awesome. We should cherish this. And I think it's one of those examples. I also think because of Novak's participation stuff, like participation issues and Alcaraz's participation issues, not in Australia, basically they have one all of the the last three majors well no they have won the majors that they have participated in and that goes back to the last two right then Djokovic in total they've all won the last three Djokovic winning Wimbledon as well if you go one before that and lastly it's the scarcity we haven't seen this in over a year and we talk about like why the Jets against the Browns on a Sunday feels so much bigger than anything else. It's because the NFL is 18 times out of the year, and that's why they get to own a day of the week. 
scarcity makes us so much more interested. And the fact that we have been tortured for a year now, not getting to see this makes makes it almost so much sweeter now that they do play. And guess what? Lucky us, we get to see it best of five at a major. That's the argument for why this is the more anticipated match. You're absolutely correct. It's the fact that it felt like we were going to get to see Djokovic Medvedev do battle multiple times, even in the immediate future, let alone over the, a two, three-year span. It's the fact that, look, Alcaraz just turned, what, 20 years old. You look for Novak Djokovic, he turned 36 this past May. We don't know how many more matches between these two we're going to get. It's also worth noting, and this part of the equation I don't think has been thoroughly explored yet, and we're still too far away to get there, but the idea of Djokovic capturing the slam record at Roland Garros of all places, like to just to do it there and to have all the photos now moving forward, the moment Novak took control, our photos at Roland Garros, which is ostensibly Rafa's house. <laughs> like the only guy who can take that away from Novak is Carlos Alcaraz. And you just – Again, what makes this match so highly anticipated, part of it is eye test, part of it is statistics, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but it just feels like Alcaraz is playing well enough to beat Novak, that if you're going purely based off of the eye test, who has looked the most impressive thus far through five five rounds of play in that top half of the draw— the answer is top-seeded Carlos Alcaraz. What he did to those two in those first two sets against Stefano Tsitsipas, you know, qualifies as a hate crime in some parts of the world. Like it was just absolute domination. And I just think again to get to see Novak test how Novak responds to this challenge at this point of his career with these stakes on the line, you can be sole possession of first place in the Grand Slam hunt for the first time in your career. And I know it's a match away, but this is the guy you got to get through. And best of all, it actually happened. Like for all the prognosticating and all the hoping and the the wishing to the tennis gods, they delivered it. This is the most anticipated match we have had because scarcity, quality of play, stakes on the line, like this is it. This is for the marbles. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's it's been the whole year leading up to this. Yeah. Right? We did a podcast about the fact that they haven't played. Yeah. A whole podcast because that's how big a deal it it kind of was because there was this storyline that was very very natural, which is the you know, the most natural storyline in tennis at any time is who is the best and it was kind of unclear because they weren't playing at the same time not that they weren't playing each other they quite literally weren't even entered in the same events uh the first time that they were entered in the same event uh was rome right or monte carlo maybe one where djokovic lost early i forget which one it was Either way, though, Alcaraz wasn't. I don't your think po- Alcaraz your point wasn't. Is, no, it w- maybe it wasn't Monte Carlo, but your point is well taken. Yes, yeah. I agree. I think first and foremost, where we should start is with Novak Djokovic and his level of play. Because you okay. look for Novak, you talk about scarcity. 
he's played 30 matches to this point of the year, 29 if you want to be specific. Djokovic 25 and 4 overall on the year. Today, 4-6, 7-6, 6-2, 4 He gets through Karen Hatchinov. Now, you look at the stats, you know, overall in the match for Novak Djokovic, I think he makes 52, or excuse me, 42 unforced errors against 57 winners. 31 of those 42 unforced errors came in the first two sets. And you could see when the lights turned on for Novak in set three, in set four, he was having success hitting with better depth, with better aggression not just from his corners, but even from stationary positions as well. That said, it took him some time to respond to the pace, to the relentlessness of the plus one aggression that Hatchinov presented. And if that presents even any sort of problem for Djokovic in this quarterfinal, wait till you have to face the plus one that is Carlos Alcaraz in the semis. Where are you with Djokovic and his level? What do you think of his performance today? I thought it reminded me of a player who's under a lot of pressure, uh, Novak Djokovic, who was under a lot of pressure in 2021. And it kind of took me back to to those matches where particularly at Wimbledon in the U.S. Open, Novak felt the pressure of going for the Grand Slam and he kept coming out tight and he kept losing first sets and it just wasn't mattering. He went 9-0 and after losing the first set at slams in that 2021 run, he did not lose one until the Medvedev final at the US Open. If you go back to the start of 2021 now, and you look at Novak's record after losing the first set at majors, he's 13 and two. So that's absurdity. I was surprised that Novak allowed Hatchinov to get away with the level that he allowed him to get away with throughout most of the second set. But then it's hard to really look at that and and ring alarm bells when the tiebreak was 7-0. And Novak is now 5-0 in tiebreaks in this tournament. So he's been so good in the clutch, so good under pressure. Has it been a consistent level? No, not really. But whenever he's needed it, he's had it. And then you mentioned sets three and four. It was cruise control. At the same time, it's Hatchinov on clay. So it, you do expect it. Uh, both of us thought that it wouldn't be an easy match for Djokovic, but at the same time, we, we do know that if Djokovic in this matchup on this surface actually reaches his best level, there's not going to be answers on the other side of the net. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the big stats I would turn to in this match, and shout out to the French Open website and Infosys, very good at providing the stats. Zero, uh, zero to four shot rallies, Djokovic, 78.1, Hatchinov, 72 Hatchinov had success imposing himself with his first serve, with his first forehand. In particular, did a really good job on that due side of getting Novak stretched outside wide on the forehand. And, you know, anytime Djokovic turned to a slice, anytime Djokovic floated anything, Hatchinov would run around the ball, first forehand, whether it was behind Djokovic, whether it was into the open court. I thought he did a really good job of mixing up his spots. The problem for Hatchinov was twofold. A, he wasn't able to sustain that level on the first serve, and you saw the first serve percentage slip. But maybe even more importantly, you just saw that first forehand start to spray a bit more. And why he did is because Djokovic did raise his level. And a credit to Novak, he stopped chipping. Like, the just the slices were gone. In, it really, 
the entirety of set three and then the serious parts, I should say, of set number four. But I just, I, I don't know, like, I do worry Hatchnov was able to get Djokovic stretched. And Hatchnov let Djokovic off the hook in ways that I just think Carlos Alcaraz won't. Like, I, I am a little concerned. I guess that's what makes this match anticipated again is I thought Djokovic was good out of the corners. I thought he played with much better aggression in the outer thirds. I didn't think he was Teflon Novak the way I did in 2021. Uh Here's the thing. I don't care how Novak looked against Hatchinov coming into an Alcaraz semifinal. Explain like, that I, to me. I, I don't think it matters. I, I think we get duped over and over again at times, and I'm trying not to do it anymore, of reading into players' form. Now, what time on court and fatigue, that's one thing. Like That's a real thing. But in terms of like, oh, this so-and-so, you know, player A – hasn't looked that good compared to player B just assuming that that's going to have an impact when player A is on the court with player B and they're going toe to toe. I don't know that it's a real thing. Like one thing I used to always do was just look at like Federer and Nadal Djokovic work their way through the first three, four rounds of a slam and try to figure out who's playing the best. And I always found, or eventually I found, that it didn't matter. It doesn't matter if Nadal's winning 1-1-1 one, one, and, one, and Federer had to win 5, 4, and 6. It, it doesn't always forecast what's going to happen here. So I just think this isn't swimming. This isn't F1 qualifying, where you're not performing in a vacuum, right? And I tweeted this word for word. Uh, you're not performing in a vacuum. Like we know that if Verstappen is going to have the fastest lap, there's nobody, any of the, the other drivers can't change that, right? But other than basically, unless they do something illegal, they literally can't do anything to prevent that. But that's not how tennis is. Like, you can make Alcaraz play worse than he's been playing. Djokovic can just play better than he's been playing. So I, I just think there are a lot of dynamics here at play other than kind of looking at where the form is at. Because, yes, obviously, obviously Alcaraz has looked way better than Novak. Well, I think that's fair. Again, I, I, I agree with your point. Here would be my counter is that the pace and the nature by which Karen Hatchinov made Novak Djokovic uncomfortable in the first few in the first set and a half, or really the first two sets, you can say, mm-hmm. was simple. First serves, first forehands, can nothing more than two shots in a row in the same direction, nothing to let Novak keep his feet steady, force Novak to try to play some slice, try to play some drop shot, try to force Djokovic to, again, be uncomfortable, be out of center, because when Djokovic can dictate, he just spreads the court better than anyone. It took Djokovic about an hour and 20 minutes to get adjusted to Hachinov's pace, to summon the level of tennis where in set number three, and again, the valuable parts of set number four, whenever he needed to, he was able to separate himself from Hatchinov. He won't have the luxury of that sort of time to work his way into a match against the Carlos Alcaraz, who, what, got off to break lead in 
at the start of all three sets against Tsitsipas today. And, you know, again, the quality that Alcaraz has most related, uh, most relatable to Nadal is just how quick they come out of the gates and just they are themselves from point number one through the finish line of the match. Now, I agree with you. The Novak Djokovic we saw in set three, if that's who we get, absolutely. That guy is the favorite against Carlos Alcaraz. It is worth noting right now, betting markets, DraftKings has Alcaraz as a slight favorite. Tennis Abstract, I think, has Alcaraz as an ever-so-slight favorite right now uh, in that matchup. Like, I don't know. I I guess, so you're not concerned by the slow start? No. I, I even just think mentally, what do you attribute the slow start to? Because I just think... Well, I think Hatcher made him uncomfortable. I, I agree, and I think Hatchinov, as soon as he got a lead, he he fell off. He was not able to continue to execute at the same... I mean, the second set, to me, was just a bad quality set. Yeah. I, I can't believe Djokovic didn't win at 6-4. I can't believe Hatchinov didn't win at 6-4. I, I just thought both of them weren't didn't really have it. Uh, you're right. Like, Karen lost kind of a, a fearlessness that he had in the first set where he was returning big and his forehand was was forceful. He was not having to play a lot of defense in that opening set. That was the key. And as soon as he started having to play more defense, it, it was ugly. That's it, it always is when he's playing defense against Djokovic because he can he does not have the movement or the defensive capabilities to deal with Novak's point construction and his pr- precision. And what Djokovic was doing was pushing him back with his weight of shot on his forehand, changing direction really often, just kind of compromising Hatchinov's court position, and then just finishing with drop shots. And it was such an easy pattern for him to go to. Yeah, I I do think that's the flip side. And I know that was the anti-Djokovic case. It's because the pro-Djokovic case is so easy to make. I mean, there was a point from midway through the first set through halfway through the fourth set where Djokovic didn't lose more than two points in a service game. Like, just was hitting all of his spots perfectly, whether it was the slice wide on the deuce to set up the first ball to the ad court to get hatched up on the full stretch. I mean, he was taking that ball early, on the rise, forehand, backhand, didn't matter. He hit that spot perfectly every time. You know, this latest final form of, no final dominant form of world number one Novak Djokovic is the improved aggression in his plus one game. That's been the final piece that's come together in this final stage of his career. And God, did he hit his spots so precisely behind the return of serve, uh, behind the serve, excuse me, in the plus one game. He's going to have to do that against Alcaraz. And I, so to go full circle here, I think that's the biggest takeaway I have from this match is that if you look for Djokovic, What's the the one thing he just needs to be doing is serving well and hitting his spots well? Because you're right. The fitness will be there when he needs it. He's proven that over the years. Mentally, he'll turn it on when he needs it. He's obviously earned that benefit of the doubt. Is he serving well enough? The answer to that question coming out of this match is yes, right? Like to me, that was the final tactical piece. And I saw enough of that today where I'm like, oh, no, he like he is tuned in. Yeah, I I think I think I'd go another way though if I'm okay. if I'm I looking like at this. what's most important. I I actually think the return might be more important. Okay. Sinner and Marojan, like what have they done to Alcaraz? They've actually crushed his serve. 
because Alcaraz will miss some spots. He'll give you some looks. And can you be offensive off of your return of serve? Uh, I think that is huge against Alcaraz. Whereas, I don't know that if this were a grass court, I would say, sure, maybe Novak can for you know serve well enough to kind of take the racket out of Alcaraz's hands, and and that could be a real key. I just don't know that these conditions are are fully allowing for that, and I I just think all in all the serve has been a little bit diminished in most of these matches. The plus one, yeah, but I'm I'm pretty confident that's gonna be there. To me, I mean, what do you think of that? I, I feel, See, I feel I that the exact he other needs way. to he he needs to be smothering on his return of serve and rush Alcaraz's plus one. I think that's a bigger key than Novak. Well, having a he, great serving day. I would agree with you if I didn't see what I saw Alcaraz do today to Stefano Tsitsipas on the return of serve. Because if you give Alcaraz even a split second to hit that first forehand cleanly from an advantageous position, again, you have already lost the point. And what's the fundamental way Novak Djokovic or the most foundational thing he has to prevent Alcaraz from doing exactly that? It's by serving well. It's by hitting his spots well. It's by forcing Alcaraz to not get to pick where he hits the ball from. Yeah. And if and if Tsitsipas, who is serving as well as anyone on the ATP tour, regardless of surface right now, if Tsitsipas isn't able to hold serve against Carlos Alcaraz, how the hell is anyone going to hold serve against Carlos Alcaraz? And I suppose in that matchup, because I think both guys are going to break serve. Like, I just think, especially against a Novak Djokovic, that is a given to me. I think he's going to have to find ways to be the aggressor behind Carlos Alcaraz serves because... That's what Djokovic has foundationally always done better than anyone else. To me, it's how does anyone put a – it's my pot. I can swear now. How the f*** does anyone put a hold on the board against Carlos Alcaraz? Like that is the foundational question to me because – and I guess this is how we can get to our other match. Tsitsipas couldn't do it today. Like it was just – I know we projected it on Monday Match Analysis, all the structural and foundational things – that make this matchup such so bad for Stefano Tsitsipas against Carlos Alcaraz. But just Alcaraz exploited every single one of them so efficiently, so effectively. Credit to Tsitsipas and the you know final wave of energy, I suppose, he found down the home stretch of that third set. But the match was never in doubt. Like... Alcaraz is just relentless. That's the word I always come back to. He is relentless, Gil. Yeah, and it was it was demoralizing because there was your classic stuff that like we may have talked about well, with like, does Carlitos bring too much weight of shot for Stefanos to protect the backhand? And the yes. answer has always been like, <laughs> yes, it's way too much weight of shot. He can't handle it. <laughs> yes. And, and that was a thing. But then you also had moments in the match where it's like, Oh, like Tsitsipas has a midcourt forehand and he's going to take it inside in. And this is what he's amazing at. And then Alcaraz is going to make like a running forehand pass. And it's like, oh, so even what Tsitsipas is good at, he can't even pull that off. It was like 
the full on the stretch because it happened notably in the third set a couple of times where you know Tsitsipas who's down a break for the majority of that third set he has two easy forehand you know put aways cross court or inside out however you want to say it and on the full sprint Alcaraz still gets there fires up these sky lobs (laughs) both of them go in one of them Tsitsipas misses the bouncing overhead the other one he ends up winning the point but you're just like who is this kid? It's just like it's ridiculous. Yeah, the the defense. How often do we see when Tsitsipas has a forehand in the middle of the court? Mm-hmm. It's over mm-hmm. because the other player just doesn't have the movement to deal with that precision and that that speed, uh the way he takes the time away. Alcaraz's movement is Look, there, there's so much to to love, and especially on clay, I think the way he generated his pace. You know, the moment that really sticks out to me in the match, the one that I won't forget, was the 115-mile-per-hour inside-out forehand. <laughs> so James Blake has the record for the fastest forehand of all time, right? The 120 miles per hour, and you've seen it, right? Yeah, it's a missile. But it's a return. Yeah. So the ball is coming really fast. It's a serve. And I don't know how fast the serve was, but it's coming fast right into James Blake's forehand. And Blake takes a full-blooded cut at a serve and connects with it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, of course it's going to go 120 miles per hour because you have a cannon being met with with a lightning bolt, and that's the result. This 115-mile-per-hour forehand the ball wasn't even coming in hard. Mm. Like Tsitsipas hit kind of a looping backhand and Alcaraz is running around it. His weight is going to his left. He doesn't even have his weight moving into the shot. And it goes 115. It's one of the most mind-bending shots I've ever seen. His racket speed is just second to none. And yeah, again, the drop shots, the on the run forehands. I thought he. I think his backhand's gotten better. Like I thought he hit it with a really good depth throughout the course of today's match. And you know, again, superficially, thirty six winners to twenty unforced errors. CT pass twenty one winners, thirty unforced errors. Yeah, Alcaraz just a casual. I make seventy seven percent of my first serves. By the way, CT pass only made fifty nine percent, and that number had to be probably seventy for him to have a shot in this match today because. The depth on the Alcaraz return, like you think he's giving you six feet of space, but because he explodes through the ball and the way that he does, that return is just on your feet before you know it. And the opportunities to serve in volley just weren't there for Tsitsipas, who goes 22 of 38 at the net. And you feel like it's a miracle he even won 22 and was over 50% because... Yeah, the, all the passes are there, the drop shots, the short angles, the down-the-line drives... I mean, again, how strong he is on the slide is just a joke. How consistently well executed the drop shot is. Ugh, it's crazy. You're paralyzed. If he is is in the ad side corner, on that ad side corner, and he is loading on a forehand, you are paralyzed. You saw that. The the most another notable moment, again, I believe it's third set this happens, is where Tsitsipas hits a backhand drop shot, a little bit of a bailout. And Alcaraz tracks it down, and Tsitsipas pinches forward in preparation for perhaps a redrop. And Alcaraz starts to load up as if he's going to hit a driving slice. And so Tsitsipas is on the ba- on the service line, but his weight is going backwards. But he's on the service line, 
and Alcaraz just hits a drop shot and set, and Tsitsipas isn't able to track it down. <laughs> and you're just like, this kid's touch is so good that Tsitsipas at the service line wasn't able to track down a base, uh, a drop shot. And just that's on top of the forehand he hits 120 miles per hour with his momentum moving left. It's just, I mean, again, I've got numbers. If you want to hear numbers, Tsitsipas, uh, excuse me, Alcaraz now 92 and 16 overall since the start of last year. He's won over 85% of his matches. If that's not enough, you look for Carlos Alcaraz already in his career. Just a laughable, ridiculous 16 and 9 against the top 10. You want to do 2023 specifically. He's 4 and 0 overall uh overall this year he's now what 13 and 5 overall since the start of last season again against top 10 opponents you want to look at him as the slam since the start of last season he's 20 and 3 overall now or 21 and 3 excuse me i mean just like he's 19 i just turned 20 excuse me he can't drink in the united states and he can go out and do that to stefano Pass. it just like, even when Pass broke back, like, the most shocking part of that moment where you're like, oh, maybe Alcaraz is human. Maybe he's a kid. But no, comes right back out, holds for 6-5, is up a mini break pretty much the entirety of that fourth set, uh, of that third set breaker. Excuse me. He played one bad game. Like, it happens. But I don't know. I, I guess any, any final thoughts on the Alcaraz Pass match? Any final thoughts on the Pass side of things? Are you just are you, what do you do if you're Stefano Pass coming out of this? When do you burn the film? Do you say like never again? Do you start practicing two-handed backhands? What do you do? It's so tough. Yeah, you, you know how we said that the the matchup keeps getting worse yeah. for Pass every time they play. Well, I, I mean it. That's obviously continued. So these are the win percentages. 51, 45, 44, 41, 40. Like, just every time they play, it gets worse. Uh-huh. What do you do if you're Pass? I mean, I guess the only thing I can be disappointed in with is just, like, his levels of belief and grit. Like, the fire. I, I, don't, I don't know if I saw that. I wanted him to be mad. Is that a... Do you agree with me? Like, I wanted him to be pissed off that he was losing. It just felt like he was trying so hard to keep his composure and not show how frustrated he was. And then there was some sarcasm when he finally does get a hold on the board in set number three. And then, you know, again, to his credit, he got the French crowd behind them. And when they're going, Stefanos, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm getting pumped as I'm yeah, because- watching. Right, because they paid 300 euros and they only were getting an hour 45 minutes of tennis. Yeah, and they were lucky to get that hour 45. That Alcaraz got broken. <laughs> like, I mean, that yeah. was what I was disappointed with. I, I don't think there's a solution on the backhand. I, I laid it out in my post-match uh, analysis where, like, if he moves back, he's too far back. It opens up the drop shot. He, he doesn't hit heavy enough to be able to be effective from that far back. Uh, he gives Alcaraz too much time to run around. If he's in the middle, it gets too high up above his shoulders. If he moves in and tries to take it on the rise, he doesn't hit it cleanly and he's not in good position. So I don't think there's a solution like very clearly and, and tactically here, but I I would like you to be a little bit more, more prideful. Uh, and again, credit that he kept fighting in the third set. Uh, that was a moment of pridefulness. But I think all in all, psychologically i i 
I do think he's kind of lost a little bit of something that he used to have. And how do you get it back? Like, I think you need to make improvements in your game that, that give you some kind of, and you kind of have to latch on to it. You have to feel like I'm different now. It's different now. I'm a different beast. Maybe they should stop practicing together, right? Like they're practicing together all the time. You are now 0-5 against this guy. He's been a major obstacle, and he will continue to be a major obstacle in you trying to accomplish big things in your career. Maybe create some distance there. I don't know. Do something different. And I I know that's kind of a drastic thing to do. Like, we can all be friends here, and we can practice together. But I don't know. Change something. Stop practicing together. Maybe. At the same time, I'd be like, dude, I need to see that forehand in my backhand before I can make it happen. Like, it just, I need a million reps against it because I agree with everything you said. If I'm like, destroy a racket, do something to change the mojo of the match. At the same time, as we said in our preview, it's just tactically hopeless because that heavy topspin and the way Alcaraz is able to exploit that ad side and that backhand corner in particular for Stefano Tsitsipas, it's the worst possible matchup for Tsitsipas. And so, I mean, again, credit to Alcaraz. He was exceptional. For what it's worth, you look for Stefano Tsitsipas now overall here on the season, 0-4 against top 10 opponents, 29-9. Excuse me, 0-5 against the top 10, 29-9 overall on the year. It's actually fascinating. His nine losses, Alcaraz, Djokovic, uh, Alcaraz twice, Djokovic, Medvedev, Sinner, Fritz, Hachinov, and then two weird ones against Thompson and Struff. But, like, he's only losing to the best. That said, you're right. The difference he lost to now, Thompson? Yeah, Indian Wells first round. That three set, oh, seven, yeah. six, and the oh, third, yeah. really weird. Yeah. Well, dude, he, he, uh, he, he had no business playing. He didn't have a backhand. Exactly. That's why I write that one off. Um... At the same time, you're right. Like, if you would have asked me two years ago, what's his record in those eight matches? I'd say, I don't know, four and four. And to not to be on the wrong end of all of them. Like, look, 30,000 foot view. Quarters of Roland Garros, he loses to Alcaraz. Finals of the Australian Open, he loses to Djokovic to start his season. Neither of those are bad. It's crazy that that said, it does feel like eh, kind of a disappointing like first half of the year for Stefano Tsitsipas because he didn't take another step forward. If the best argument you can make is that he plateaued and that he's holding at five in the world, but that might be where he's holding. Right. But also at a certain point, you do play every week. If you're at Tsitsipas's level, it's a huge luxury. You do play to win the title. And this is the first year. This is going to be the first year probably since like 2019 uh, I would assume since 2019 that the Tsitsipas will leave clay court season without a clay title. Yeah. I mean, he, he he wins one every year. So you have that. And then I I guess the the real bad news, this is something that like I didn't say, I haven't tweeted because it's like no need yeah. to really go there right the now. Exclusive. Look, the exclusive is his record against the current top three in the world is awful oh it's so bad you can say you can say that there's an alcaraz problem right and you can say oh the x's and o's of the matchup aren't good wait what about novak and what about medvedev mm-hmm. who beat him on clay 
What about a healthy Zverev? What about that Sinner matchup that I want to see more of? I don't think that one's going to be particularly opportune for Tsitsipas either. I have that same tweet in my... Well, that that one he's done. He's played very well in that one. Yeah, but it's early. Like, uh, he didn't play this year's Yannick Sinner. And that's a matchup I hope we get to see down, uh, particularly during the summer hard courts because grass court mm-hmm. season is what it is. But I have a similar tweet in my drafts right now, my friend. I'll leave it at that because <laughs> I agree. The record's not great for Stefano Tsitsipas. And, you know, again, with that in mind... Last two questions for you, or last three, I suppose. Let's talk tactics. Djokovic versus Alcaraz. What do you expect to see Novak employ? What does the Djokovic win look like? It's interesting because the way the way I really think he should play Alcaraz, I haven't I haven't seen him play like this uh, in this tournament. I feel like Novak has been playing kind of deeper in the court and playing heavier topspin with more height and net clearance uh and then kind of looking for chances to step in and and use the drop shot uh or or flatten out the forehand but i i feel like he needs to stay on top of the baseline and try to play really really fast and i don't know if it's gonna if it's gonna work in these conditions and, and maybe that's a terrible idea just because this is slower clay but whenever i've envisioned this matchup I've envisioned Novak having to play a lot like Yannick Sinner has played Alcaraz, who has had more success against him than anybody. And Djokovic can totally do what Sinner does, which is just stand on the baseline, take time away, hit big. You can hit to big targets, but hit big and just make Alcaraz uncomfortable with the amount of time he's getting on the other side of the court. That's the play. My concern for Djokovic is like, oh, you're going to try to rush him on on like a red on red clay. Is that really what we're doing here? I think the wrinkle to that is you need to try to hit heavy topspin, move Alcaraz back, and then go to the drop shot. Alcaraz is going to try to do the same thing to Novak. And I'm just I'm so interested to see who can open up the court for the drop shot because both of them are using it so well. Both of them are covering the court so well. It's just tough. It's going to be tough for either one of them to hit through each other without coming forward and finishing volleys or using the drop shot. I think that's an excellent point, and I hate to simplify things like this, but I think it's the Rafa game plan. I think the backhand down the line is going to be everything for Novak Djokovic. He has to be willing to go into the beast when Alcaraz is set up on that ad side, getting ready to go inside out, inside out, and either drop shot or inside in with that forehand pattern. Novak's got to disrupt it. His backhand down the line certainly good enough to do it. We've seen him do it on this surface before. I agree with you. You got to go drop for, drop shot for drop shot with Alcaraz. Be willing to use that play. The slice wide, with which Novak uses so effectively, on the do side as a serve. That's the the single matchup thing from Novak from a tactical perspective. I'm most intrigued to see what he does with because Alcaraz moves so well on the return of serve to that side. And yes, he'll give you some space and play a couple of feet behind the baseline. But if he gets his racket on the ball on the forehand wing, you're just in trouble. And so I wonder how quickly that, tactic gets just thrown in the waste bin or you know if that's something Djokovic is going to work in with consistency on the same side or on the flip side 
you alluded to it. And I just want your thoughts first. What do you think the Alcaraz tactics are? What are his responses? Well, in Madrid, it was a super close match. There was a clear separator, which is that whenever Alcaraz hit a kick serve, particularly on the ad side, he won the point. And it was a cheat code. I think we'll see that again in a big way. I think the plan for Alcaraz is get the ball above Djokovic's shoulders on the backhand and attack that next ball because that is going to be from a a pace standpoint, that's the weakest shot on the court. You get the ball over Novak's shoulders, suddenly he's not all that powerful anymore. Now we attack. And he's going to use his heavy topspin to do that in rally. He's going to use his kick serve to do that. Um, yeah. That's the biggest thing for me. I think what where tactically Djokovic, he's going to have to scrap this, much like he did against Hachinov, a, a little bit. There were times today when, when Djokovic would get stretched on the return, he'd throw up a high, heavy topspin shot, or he'd throw in just a loopy slice that would give Hachinov time to sit on the forehand. If he does that against Alcaraz, Alcaraz is putting that forehand away. You just can't give Alcaraz forehands with time. Right. The thing that, again, Novak is so adept at doing, particularly on that ad side, taking that backhand a little bit early, or much like Alcaraz, he may give you a few feet on the return of serve, but the depth, the precision which with which he hits his spots on that return of serve neutralize any time you might have. That said, you talk about getting that ball up on the shoulder. Kick wide for Alcaraz. The same way I talk about do sw- uh, slice wide for Djokovic. Kick wide for Alcaraz to set up the first forehand. That's his bread and butter. That's his play. Can you do that to Novak on a surface this slow when Novak's going to yeah. have such a clean re- look on the return of serve on that backhand wing? He hit I one casually against Hatchinov today. Hatchinov missed a first serve return. It was in the four-all service game in that third set. Hatch, uh, fourth set, excuse me. Hatchinov missed a first serve, but it was in the game. Obviously, Djokovic breaks to then serve for the match, and you could just, I mean, you broke at love. You knew it was coming, and it was the love 15 point. Hatchinov misses a first serve, but Djokovic lasers just a perfect backhand return. And that's when I knew, like, okay, he's going to break at love. Why is that serve available for Carlos in this match? I think it's Novak's worst return. Uh, you you can't beat Novak. It's so hard to beat him right and left. He's such a good pace absorber. He's so good when you try to go into the body, uh, which obviously that's not a common play, but I when it is attempted, it's tough. You can kick it above his shoulders and get a, a weaker backhand. I think Berrettini has done it really well. I think Team has done it really well. And Alcaraz did it really well in Madrid. You you better bring a excellent kick serve. Uh, notably, Nadal has never had that ability. He can slice it wide, but he can't kick it wide. So he doesn't get that height. Uh, that's where Djokovic's backhand return at times against Nadal has has really shined bright and made that matchup difficult. But I think you can hit a kick serve to Djokovic's backhand and you're not, you might not get that many free points with that, but you are going to get a pace of shot that is much easier to handle uh, than, than what you would get if you're oftentimes hitting a slice serve out wide on the deuce side. Sure. 
Uh, that's fair. I will say, Tsitsipas had some issues when he got stretched wide on the forehand wing. I think he just struggled with the heaviness of Alcaraz's ball. Djokovic struggled a little bit early when stretched by Hatchdov on that forehand wing, but once he found his zone, I'm telling you, Djokovic is hitting his on-the-run forehand right now. It's just locked in in a way that reminds me of 2021 when it was just so clear how important that shot would be against Rafa. I feel like he knows how important that cross-court forehand is going to be against Alcaraz in this semifinal. And yeah, to your point, if you can get that ball up on the shoulder, Djokovic will get that ball back with depth. But yeah, I, I think you're right to say Carlos will have a little bit of time to dictate with that forehand. And with all that said, my final question, I know you're going to do a breakdown. You want to give me a prediction? Yeah, sure. Uh, before the tournament, I said Alcaraz in four, mm. and uh, I will be sticking with that pick. I, again, I'm in a weird position here because I do think everybody's getting duped. I, I hate the discourse right now. I don't think it matters that Alcaraz has blown out Musetti and Tsitsipas and, and Djokovic looked kind of vulnerable for two sets against Davidovic Fakina and didn't come get off to a good start against Hatchinov. I don't, I genuinely do not think any of that matters. But I also think that this surface is too slow for Djokovic to exploit Alcaraz in the ways that I think he can exploit Alcaraz, which is win the surf return battle and rush Alcaraz. Uh, I think with time, Carlitos's uh, power is going to stand out. His speed is going to stand out. And all the options he has finishing points is going to stand out along with his kick serve. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think what's the biggest weapon on the court? It's pro, well, you're, you'd say Djokovic's brain, which is fair, but it's probably Alcaraz's forehand from a tennis perspective. And on courts this slow in conditions like these, that's the one thing I know is going to be able to hit through these courts. I just think as creative as Djokovic can be with the drop shot, with the cross-court angles moving forward, I don't want to say Joke Alcaraz is better, but he's at least as good on this surface at doing all of those things. And so, yeah, I do think it's fairly equal across the board. Again, they're both elite movers on this surface. They both can do things to disrupt the rhythm and take away what the other wants to do. I'm excited for a really good match. I'm hoping for five sets. I think we're going to get four as well. I'll disagree with you. I'll take Novak. Like, I need to see someone beat him in three out of five sets of this generation before I believe it again. And it, it, to me, Zverev just bruised him up so much in the totality of everything going into that 28th match at the 2021 U.S. Open. It wouldn't count as much as this Alcaraz match if he's to beat Djokovic, how much that would count in my head of, oh my God, I've seen it happen from someone from this younger generation where... It's still a relatively healthy and relatively well-rested Djokovic comparatively to the field. Yeah, Thank I'll, you. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Uh, Djokovic in four, though, because I want to be different from you. No, thank you for doing that. I'm glad. It's it's annoying me. It's annoying me that nobody... I'm picking Alcaraz, yet it's annoying me that nobody's picking Novak. No, I I need to see it to believe it. Because, again, I saw the serving from Novak today, and I agree with you. Like, I think he's fit. I think he's hitting... It's just that zone. It gets back to it. It's that perception of Novak 
has played these first five matches as if he has been preparing for the sixth one. And the only other time I really remember him doing that was 2021, and he beat Rafa that year. I'm going to pick him to beat Alcaraz this year, but... Man, it's going to be fun. I know you'll be breaking it down one more time. Where can everyone find your work? What what you're up to? Uh, Gil Gross, YouTube, Gil underscore Gross. Uh, this is with two L's. Okay. I, I'm like I'm like Rusillo. Ryan, R-Y-E-N. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> and uh, Monday Match Analysis on all podcast platforms. I love to hear it. Well, of course, I appreciate you taking the time to join us for this home and home. I always appreciate the efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, as well. What sort of a job does he have to do, Gil? of an editing job oh day in day out that's what he does here at cracked records i've started asking dk to do that at the end of the show and he has so much fun with his f-bomb and so i'm gonna start offering that to you as well shout out Thank to you. you shout out to Westoff. shout out to our friends at tennis point tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for the fantastic Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break! And we will see you all later today. Thank you as always, my friend. Thanks, Grusky.